Okay, so for those of you just tuning in, we are Native Women discussing topics related to Northwest Missing and Murdered. Thank you for joining us for Episode 1, Dusky Maidens in Demand. We will take a look at an article and discuss the impacts and how it relates to the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women, especially from the perspective of Yakima women. Joining me today is Patsy, Robin, and Lucy. All right. So joining us today is Lucy Smartlawat. She is an enrolled member of the Yakima Nation as in worked within many capacities of the Yakima tribal community. She identifies as Yakima and Mexican and she has an MSW and an MA. Previously a research coordinator for the Healing Seasons Project through the University of Washington. She now works for the Yakima Nation IT department. She's joining us in her personal capacity. Thank you for joining us today, Lucy. Hi everyone, it's good to be here. Uh, our producer and other co-host is Robin P. Vichy. She has a BA. She is Yakima and Comanche. Robin has also worked in various capacities for the Yakima Nation. She is a research coordinator for the Healing Seasons Project for the University of Washington. She is born in the lower Yakima Valley. She grew up in Toppenish, Washington on the Yakima Reservation and attended the University of Washington in Seattle uh, and has lived in the Seattle area for 10 years before moving back to homeland on Yakima uh, Nation Reservation. Hi. Uh, she's and our other uh, co-host consultant is uh, Patsy Whitefoot. Patsy is a lifelong educator of the Yakima people, and she's actually recognized for that work nationally as well as she sits on numerous boards regionally and nationally. She is a, a proud grandmother parent. She's also leads the Little Swans Dance Group and she is an advocate uh, for the missing and murdered uh, Yakima women and indigenous women. Thank you, Patsy. Thank you. Good morning, Shikmaitski and Ashwanik Shastwapet. Good morning. And I realized I did not introduce myself. So my name is Emily Washeens. I have an MPA and scholar. I'm enrolled at the Yakima Nation and have Cree and Skokomish lineage. You can find me on War Cry podcast, on my own blog, Native Friends. And I also research historical aspects of missing and murdered indigenous women on the Yakima Reservation. And I also uh, live on the Yakima Reservation with my husband and three children. So War Cry, we're catching up on current events. June 3rd, there was the presidential task force that happened and we'll have more on that in episode two. Today is the Yakima Nation Treaty Day. While events are postponed in person, there are still virtual dance contests happening and a lot of people just recognizing what's happening with the treaty. We'll also turn to our guests during our discussion portion to ask what the treaty means to them, as well as, uh, you know, how is this significant to the article that we're discussing? Okay, so we'll be just catching up on current events. On June 3rd, the presidential task force happened. And we'll have more on that on episode two. Today is the Yakima Nation Treaty Day, June 9th, 1855, which is a commemoration of that treaty signing. While events in person are postponed, there are still things happening in a social distance way, such as a virtual dance contest. This treaty is significant to our episode now. We'll have more on that in the discussion portion as I turn to our co-hosts and ask, what does Treaty Day mean to you? How does that apply to the article we're discussing? The article, Dusky Maidens Are In Demand. Toppenish Half-Breed Brings White Husband 50,000. Portland, Oregon, December 10th special. Dusky maidens of the Yakima Indian Reservation are receiving no end of attention from white suitors. Many mixed blood marriage has, has been made lately because of the money that Indian maids bring their husbands. A Toppenish quarter breed was recently married to a white man after a two week courtship. She owns a well-placed allotment of Indian lands and her her mother's real estate is figured at 50,000. A very pretty Indian belle who is still heart whole and fancy free, although she has many admirers among the pale faces, as well as many of the 
I, as well as many of the R skins, is the daughter of Josephine Lilly. The mother is really remarkable Indian woman whose allotment of land was within the present town of Toppenish. She conducted a real estate business there and has just put up a fine stone apartment house and is said to own one of the Toppenish weekly papers. She has been twice married to white men and her daughter has been brought up in Portland Convent. Uh, I want to remind our viewers that a lot, some, a lot of these terms are not used today. This is uh, definitely something that we're taking in context of that. Uh, but we did want to read the article for what it was and how it was printed in 1910, aside from one word that I just couldn't read. Where did this article come from? Where did I first see it? I was reading uh, The Beginning of End and Rape by Sarah Deer, which is described as it makes a... a it makes available powerful writings in which Sarah Deer, who plays a crucial role in the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act in 2013, has advocated for cultural and legal forms to protect Native women from sexual violence and abuse. These essays point to the possibility of actual and positive change in a world where Native women are systematically undervalued, left unprotected, and hurt. And so we just want to give a war query out to Sarah Deer and her work and her book for definitely recognizing, you know, what our Yakima women have went through. But this is not a process that I, we should ever be going through alone. And so I'm so glad to, that we have our co-hosts here today to discuss this article and what it means and how we feel about it. So I turn to our co-hosts and I ask, what did you think about this article? For one, I'm like, there must be no HIPAA laws back then. It's a lot of information on one lady. <laughs> it's like her entire life is like set out there, her finances. Um, but then it also speaks to the only reason why someone would want to um, want to marry a Native woman is for the financial gain that it could give you. And not even necessarily saying, I mean, for one, I wouldn't want somebody out there uh, publishing an article about me that was like, hey, she's single, you know, you should marry her, let alone she's single and she has a lot of land and that, you know, you should probably marry her or her descendants or her daughters or someone out of her family because, you know, this is the financial gain you can get. And as we look in the context, of history with this article you know this was years so many like 50 some years or so after the allotment act so land grab uh mass land grab wasn't far from you know that prospect people were still looking to to grab any land any way that they could when i first read this article my question was what was the date and we're still looking for the actual date. It's December 10th, but what year was it? And then also what was the purpose for this article as it was written? And so what purpose did they have? <clears throat> and as I read through it and began to just kind of hone in on the specific statements, uh, particularly around many a mixed blood marriage has been made lately because of the money that Indian maids bring to their husbands I mean, if you just stop to think about that statement, there's always this notion that Indian people have money. And so how that individual wrote this article, article makes me question what's the background that this individual has on this money. You know, having um, you know, worked with my own tribe, but also with other uh, state governments and nationally, you know, there's this mixed understanding or little understanding about the resources that tribal people have. And oftentimes those resources come from the tribe themselves and not necessarily a government. And so just that statement alone to me is very uh, stereotypical and characterizes Native people as having money. Similarly, we can take a look at um, today the casinos and how, you know, officials, particularly state officials, think that tribes have money when they really don't know the background of that. And again, just another stereotype um, this Indian maiden brings to her husband. Are our Indian women expected to bring resources to their husband 
I thought, you know, European Western thinking is that the husbands are the providers. So this is, again, just a, a mixed bag of conflicting uh, understandings and values that we have. Um, and then just a statement when you go on this very pretty Indian bell who is still heart hold and fancy free. I mean, again, what is the context behind this and what does the writer, you know, intend to say that this individual is fancy free? And then finally, just one statement that stuck out for me was that the mother married twice to white men and the daughter was brought up in Portland convent. And so as I read this, uh, you know, it made me think about the early history uh, of the Northwest. And um, I was also reminded of a display I read in the Oregon State Legislature building while I was there testifying on behalf of missing and murdered indigenous women. Basically, this display highlighted the history and relationships that evolved between the Indian people, particularly Native women, and early fur traders, pioneers, and the setting, settling of the state of Oregon. So you can read into that, that it's not only the settling of the state of Oregon, but also the entire Northwest. You know, what my questions were, you know, what was the intent of these relationships that the fur traders and the settlers had with Native people, again, in particular with Native women. And as I continued to read into that display that I saw, um, it, it reminded me of the violence that women had faced. And for me, the display, again, opened up several questions. So my question was, who was involved in providing this narrative and interpretation of the history? Was there tribal voices in this history and display being shared with the general public? Now, this was very, very recently, uh, 2021, as a matter of fact. And so I'm always asking, well, whose voice is it coming from? And, um, and I can go on later about you know, other reflections that I had about this particular article. And um, being an educator and a researcher, um, those are the kinds of questions that it opens up for me. And I also think about that history, but where we are today where Native women aren't, again, valued and Native women aren't seen as human. And so there's, um, there's many more questions that we'll be having and I look for, forward to the dialogue we'll be having. Okay. Lucy? So kind of leading off of what Patsy had mentioned, um, in regards to how women have been treated. Some things that originally come to mind when I first read this article was the exploitation of our women um, and how there was this encouragement of capitalism during that time. Like, you know, so we're objectified down to what our land value is worth. And so I just thought that was really interesting. <laughs> that that is something um, that they would advertise. I almost felt like this was um, a modern state Craigslist, so to speak, or maybe even like a, a classified ad, like mentioned by the way, you know, like there are dusky maidens and Toppenish type of thing. Um, and one of the first questions that I really had was what is dusky? Um, what is this descriptive word, <laughs> you know? And so um, I also had to go back because I'm a real visual and, um, person that likes to look into things to try to get a full understanding of of what they were really trying to say and dusky is meant to describe a color like a, a darker color of um, red and so um, when I read that as the headline and then to have it followed up with Toppenish half-breed brings white husband 50,000 I feel like we're talking about horses, we're talking about cattle, or we're talking about a, a bloodline, so to speak. So of course it leads to, you know, the current issues that we have today around blood quantum. And, um, and just, it goes back to the objectification. And so it really, um, as a person who is mixed and who has faced adversity, you know, in trying to figure out what my identity is, um, that half-breed really kind of triggered something for me 
And so that is also something, you know, um, just the overall two, two main points that, you know, that gave my or, original reactions. Thank you. I appreciate the insight that you've given uh, Robin for setting out the timeline, Patsy for the educators kind of take on it and the ongoing questions and the main things within the article and Lucy for, you know, yes, pointing out what is, what was this word mean? What was the impact of this um, both then and now? Uh, when I, I had similar range of feelings. I think when I read this, I was shocked. Uh, I wrote a little shock face in the book. Like they're talking about Yakimas. <laughs> um, they're talking about targeting my people, my women. I felt protective of them. I felt um, pained for our Yakima women that they went through this in 1910, even though it was so long ago, I, I felt upset for them. I, I, I mourn for the, what they might have been going through because there was actual newspapers that went out in several articles throughout the country where this was reprinted that described how we can target Yakima women. And I thought, what a shift of this, what a shift that has happened from how our people value our matriarchal society for Yakima women. I immediately just wanted to talk to our people about what this article means. What did, what are we hearing? And I actually think that a lot of that knowledge is held by the family members themselves. I actually went to a private Yakima group and kind of let this all kind of flow out. And I got different accounts. Some of those they're not really ready to be public with. Um, but I still think that this is a very important story to tell, very important history. And when we think about history today, we also think about the treaty. So there's this whole range of our producer Robin set out a nice timeline for us in which uh, she says, you know, 55 years after the Yakima Nation Treaty was signed, we have this article. So I wonder if we can take a second back and think and just pose that question again to you. What does the Yakima Nation Treaty mean to you? And how does that relate to this article? Um, Emily, I was hoping that maybe, or even Patsy, if you could give a little bit about the Yakima, like, like I had, was thinking like maybe like a Craig's, not Craigslist, a Cliff's Notes. If we could have like a Cliff's Notes of what the Yakima War was um, and the treaty, like how the treaty ties into this because as mentioned um it was so I was looking at the notes here it's like it was 23 years after allotment era happened that this article came out um 55 years after the treaty was signed uh and then 51 years after it was ratified and then at this point um the state of washington was just made 20 years before that so if we think of um some of my younger relatives it's like when they were born like that all of those things would happen and this article would be released so it, it's not a whole lot of time that went by through all of these really historical events so in the 1855 time frame there was a series of treaties that were being signed in the northwest area so the on june 9th 1855 one of the largest treaty councils in the entire U.S. was held in Walla Walla with several different tribes, numerous tribes attending. One of which is now known as the Yakima Nation was the 14 confederated tribes and bands of the Yakima Nation. We still have so many tribal members that remain strong to their band identity. And we really came together to protect the resources for those not yet born. We knew there was going to be contact. We knew there was going to be more people here. We decided to reserve our rights uh, to fish, gather, hunt, as well as other uh, things that are in the treaty and try to see how we can live peacefully among our neighbors. Uh, several months later, gold was found. That meant there was a rush of different miners that were coming through the land. There's two different incidents of Yakima women being raped. In one, in one of those instances, the women and children and a child and a baby board were raped and murdered by minors. This was our first report to the United States 
about a Yakima missing and murdered uh, women, the United States responded with three years of war. This is a very heavy history. This is a very light overview. We'll definitely be covering and talking about this repeatedly. Um, but there definitely is a history and a pattern that we recognize uh, here today. That said, on June 9th, we don't always call it a celebration amongst the tribe. We have what's called a commemoration because we're looking at and honoring and reviewing all of the history that connects with the treaty and the policies around that time. We're connecting with the fact that our men had looked and seen what had happened in the California gold rush and made sure to say, we will not accept our Yakima women being mistreated to the point where they had smoke signals all around the land to call for more warriors to step up and help us protect our women and children and our families. That's again, still has a very heavy history. We have three years of war and most people in the Yakima Valley do not know we had a Yakima war. Um, so we have this continuum of history um, that connects with the treaty and different things that really stem from it. Um, when we are able to gather as a people, I feel pride for the most part. I know that there's heaviness. I know that there's things that we're still correcting and still addressing. But when I see the little kids that are usually on the parade that go by and they're all in the regalia and they're waving. Sometimes, of course, it's Patsy with them, with the little swans. I just, I feel a sense of pride because I'm like, we are still here. You know, that is our war cry. We have a sense of pain. We have a sense of pride with this. Um, but I'm interested in your thoughts about how, what's coming up when we talk about the treaty and the history. Yeah. So there's so many elements to what Emily was sharing about the history, uh, particularly with the treaty. And um, I think we have to be mindful that when this treaty was done, it was done with several tribes. It wasn't just the 14 tribes and bands of the Yakima Nations, but also our relatives of the Plateau tribes that were a part of, and our families extend throughout the Northwest. And when I think about that, um, our women folk also travel continue to travel throughout the Northwest well, as well, exercising our sovereignty you know, as women, continuing on with what our ancestors taught us, but also sharing these stories uh, similar to what Emily had shared about the treaty signing in Walla Walla and asking ourselves, well, what did that entail? And why was this even held at Walla Walla? What does it bring to mind when you hear stories in your textbooks about the Whitman massacre? Why is it a massacre then when you know you had um, violations occurring? Again, uh, I gave a little history um, on the role of um, you know settlers, but also the fur traders, and and we have to also take a look at formal religion and what does that mean uh, for us? And so we then are responsible for going back and, and taking a look at that and really examining the impact and influence of Christianity in our communities as well. Um, and during the war, I always think about the stories, the songs and the ceremonies that were held. That's what's important to me about is those, are those ceremonies and stories that were shared during that time, because we still have those stories today. We still have that history and we still have those ceremonies that we continue to conduct. And we still have our language as well. And we still have our traditions that we're continuing to carry on. And so while we're here talking about, you know, the violence toward missing uh, and murdered indigenous women, we are also mindful of our children and our grandchildren and those that are still coming in their future as well. Uh, with regard to um, just that period of time, uh, I'm also mindful of the, the role of not only the military site, but the role of the, mil the military school. We've all been impacted by that as well. What did this mean when we were, you know, when our children, well, my grandchildren, my immediate family members were part of that military school. What impact and influence and did it have on our families? Um, 
I can only think that, you know, that families were forcibly removed, children were forcibly removed from their families and put in a military school. They were basically rounded up. And I live in the community of White Swan and I live just about, you know, two miles from this military installation and constantly think about that history. It's, um, it, it is painful to think about it um, and to, for the children that were to be able to speak your language, our language that was spoken at you know, the treaty time, but also to continue to speak your language at a school and an educational institution. The children were forbidden and they were whipped. The family of children were whipped, their mouths washed with soap, which were stories that my grandmother told me about this place, but not only her, but other children that were there. Uh, and then the kind of uh, trade that uh, was being taught there, and again, Christianity is a part of the military institution, they go hand in hand. And the whole goal was to assimilate us and to mainstream society and to rid us of our Indianness and to continue moving us forward. But yet, um, I'm so pleased um, and so proud of our people that they didn't allow that to happen. And I find us today where we're, you know, we're working toward revival, reclaiming that which was not necessarily lost, but that which was prohibited. And we're continuing to work together with one another to bring our collective history, to bring our culture and language and who we are as Yakima people. Um, there's so much to say about this location um, and where we are today, but as we continue to go on, we'll continue to share about this violence that occurred amongst our people. And this violence is still a part of us and it's taken on in, you know, similar shapes and forms. We see it in our communities. Um, when I think about the violence, I, you know, I can't just help about what's going on today in society, particularly here on the reservation with the violence that continues to occur here, but also the violence that just um, occurs amongst families, not just general community members, but also in particular our, our Native people. So there's many more uh, questions that I have but also we're here to work towards solutions as well. And I find that we can always go back to our treaty. We can always go back to the words that were shared by our ancestors about their vision for us and about their prayers that they had for us as a people. So looking forward to further dialogue with everyone. Thank you. Thank you, Patsy. We can always go back to our treaty. Mm -hmm. Like seriously, I don't know how I could even follow up with that. But um, <laughs> one of the things as you both were talking, I think, again, for someone who had a disconnect from culture and tradition while growing up, um, your guys's words resonated um, quite deeply with me because when I was growing up, I never really had the chance um, you know, to be exposed in that way to our history. Um, I think I expressed before to Emily, um, I can, and Robin, when I was in high school, I can remember the Yakima Wars being mentioned in our Washington State history in a paragraph about this big. And um, at that time, I couldn't understand um, or even knew, you know, that it had happened here or um, anything to that extent. So when we talk about the treaty and what it means for us, I'm still developing that meaning as I, as I grow and as I learn. Um, but one of the things that really stuck out for me is just this unification of our people during that time um, and how important it was for them to come together to be able to express um, the demands that they wanted for, for our future. And so I find that, um, you know, beyond words, for them to think about what would happen beyond their lifetimes. And so when I think about that as an individual who is an enrolled member, you know, um, I'm, I'm really humbled because sometimes we just, we can't think, 
in present day, you know, what's going to happen beyond our next paycheck or what's going to happen beyond um, tomorrow, you know, at times. So um, it has really given me a different perspective. And, and I just want to say I, I appreciate you guys sharing that. Thank you, Lucy. Uh, so as we're discussing this, and I'm listening to you all speak, I see that you know, sometimes it's hard to make a connection between the treaty and this article and where we are currently. And, you know, I kept thinking about it and I was uh, reflecting back on this conversation I had with a friend of mine who uh, got his, uh, I think it's like a JD in law, um, indigenous law, and uh, like not necessarily tribal governance, but he did a lot of research on uh, Native American law um, with the United States. And of course, it always goes back to the treaty being that it is a, it is a part of the, um, you know, it, it's, a, it's upheld along with the Constitution of the United States. And so in discussing treaties around the United States, a lot of people tend to think that it has to do with the United States recognizing our native nations as our own nations. But really, I mean, from our perspective and from what I felt uh, this person had shared with me, it's, it was the way that the United States legitimized itself is with treaties that they signed with us, not the other way around. Uh, you know, which is, goes into a deep history of even imagery, like the only way that the United States could differentiate themselves from their counterparts of who they left in Europe was our image, was the Native American image, um, because we were the thing that was unique in the world. Um, so based on that, that the legitimacy of our nation or of this nation, the United States, was based on recognizing that our nations are sovereign, um, that we legitimize them, and the fact that in particularly, our treaty was based uh, on a way to quell or end a war that was ignited by violence and violations against our Yakima women, it's, it's like the legitimacy in the eyes of our nations is that we are a nation and, and that we are a nation based on violence against women, particularly in our region against Yakima women, uh, which is still perpetuated and encouraged like years later, especially with this particular article. Um, and then years later, as we still currently fight for our treaty rights, uh, we also fight for the rights of our native women and indigenous women so that they can live without violence and live without being violated. And then I, you know, in acknowledging our presence here, it takes courage to speak. Um, us as native women, we're trying to make our, our voice known as Yakima women, indigenous women. Um, and even as we speak, I think that we have fear because I know I do sometimes, you know, I still have fear, but I see more and more that our voice is important. Thank you, Robin. Yeah. The fight. Oh, sorry. I'd like to just um, add that uh, what we're speaking about here today is really a part, is our history. And that's who we are and we're claiming it regardless of the voice that we bring to this and it's up to us to capture it because if we don't then i say who's going to so it's really up to us and i really appreciate the dialogue today thank you i appreciate i appreciate so much the sharing and the words today and you know having this continuum and this connection there's so many different aspects and themes that come up with this article uh the the boarding school era. So we have the Nation Treaty was signed in 1855. Uh, it started concluding in 1858, even though they were still hunting some of our uh, Yakima warriors. Uh, 1859, the Nation Treaty was signed. And right after that, they started sending our children to assimilation schools, uh, referred to as boarding schools. So these boarding schools that we talked to weren't ski trips. They weren't hiking trips. They were meant to take away uh, your, who, your identity, as Patsy had mentioned. And when we think of this article and we think about how does this relate to the treaty, how does this all connect, I really um, 
something spoke to me when Raman was talking about fighting for our treaty rights. In, in looking at how our Yakima women were targeted, in seeing how they were targeted for our land and our resources, and in bringing this to light today, and seeing how their treaty right to exist, their treaty right to live in the land, are we not fighting for them? Are we not fighting for our Yakima women's treaty rights, even though it was way back then? Who owns that land now? How did they get it? And would they ever come on and talk to us about it on this show? To hear that, to bring this forward, to bring this to light, to reconcile that. So I, th I thank you so much for, for this because it also brings up this ongoing targeting of Yakima women. And I, I hope that we can, can bring up this topic. How does this article and targeting of Yakima women how does targeting of Native women relate to missing and murdered Indigenous women crisis? So I, that's my next question I pose to you. So how does this question of women being targeted? Um, for me, uh, I go back to, you know, the history and take a look at the history in Europe as well, because that impacts us today because of the various laws, policies, uh, the papal bull, when you get into the doctrine of discovery, you'll learn that Native people, you know, we were called different things. We were identified as different things. We were pagans. And again, I think this is where you get the terms like squaws for women. Um, we just were not human is how I view what the papal bulls state. And when you take a look at those papal bulls and there's thousands of them, you know, coming from the time that, um, uh, you know, the Europeans came here this is the kind of notion and attitudes that we have toward indigenous people. It's, it's not just our women, but it's also all of indigenous people. But more, I think more pronounced, it's the Indian women who are being targeted today or have been targeted for some time. There are many layers and ways that our women have been targeted. And all we have to do is take a look at the disproportionate rate of you know, violence toward women, the murder and missing women, um, uh, look at domestic violence in our homes as well. So in my case, I have several family members who were missing or murdered. And it's caused me to take a look at this and to take a look at this whole history and where it came from. I mean, I've not read the Bible, but I hear things about the Bible as well and that interpretation that occurs in stories from the Bible. So it makes me want to read it and see what does it say, really say. And yet when we talk about you know, Christianity and the faiths that we have, my question is, well, let's take a look at what's going on today in the United States with violence in, in our streets and violence coming from religious organizations and uh, from you know, the top layers of government toward people. And so you have to question all of that. And so it's just literally around us. It's so literally around us. And it's been a part of my life that just talking about this, you know, causes my body to just, you know, get firm and talk about it because then it begins to make me angry. And so I begin to think about protection for my sisters, for my, my children, my grandchildren, the people that are a part of this pod podcast today. And then that's the reason that we're speaking up is to continue bringing awareness and education to one another, but also talking, you know, within our families as well, talking to my grandchildren about this violence and, and saying enough is enough. If anybody's going to make these changes, it's going to be us and why we're saying this is the War Cry podcast. So just want to thank you all for being a part of this. Thank you, Patsy, and I appreciate your words, especially as an advocate and a family member of several people that are missing and murdered on our Yakima lands. Um, when I was going through grad school at WashU, that was really when I had the opportunity to focus on Native American studies of what they gave us access to. And um, I was also taking the social economic development class with a professor that was taking us out of the college campus and into the community where social workers should be. And what I appreciated about those two learning experiences 
were the fact that history had continued to portray people of color in caricatures. I, I believe that's the word. So in the sense that it dehumanized us. And um, during this time is when I was living off the reservation. So I was living in Missouri for three years, and then I lived in Pennsylvania for a few years, and then I moved to Seattle. During that time, I did not realize how romanticized we were as um, to dominant society. Um, when I moved to Missouri, there were no indigenous people there. Uh, they had all been run off, you know? And it was my first time visiting um, the Trail of Tears. And that was really, you know, an important uh, time in my life for me to experience. And then I started to venture out somewhere and visit these historical sites where in history, you know, our people have continuously fought or been removed. Um, when I moved to Pennsylvania, <laughs> I actually lived about 20 miles from Carlisle Indian boarding school. And I went there as well, where it's still an active military base. And we visited the grave, you know, uh, the graveyard or the cemetery of all the indigenous youth that had lost their lives while they were attending boarding school. So when I think about um, these things, I didn't realize, again, the romanticization, um, how we're portrayed in paintings, you know, they really make a native woman look like really flowy in her buskin dress or she's got beautiful long black hair, um, you know, and these soft, delicate features. And so, you know, it leads me back to what does this dusky maiden really look like? But not just that, how us as, a, as people have bought into that internalized oppression, um, how we think we need to be darker skinned or more fairer or, you know, like all of those all of those things and then how our men should look as well and so that influence you know that continues today I feel like we are trying to give voice and break down those stereotypes that have been building up for so long in our communities and what we've come to accept because of dominant society um, and it just it really just floors me to to think about like I even myself you know had bought into like should I be related to nature like Pocahontas? You know, because <laughs> that was my only influence at that time and still trying to figure out what my identity was. And so I just think um, being able to talk about things and, and separate them and differentiate the reality versus what we're seeing in society and what society is telling us. And then being able to replace some of those things like reclaiming, you know, who we are and our history and you know that's where this conversation comes back to um but that's all i wanted to share about that just a quick note that pocahontas is also a sex trafficking victim on the east coast thank you lucy robin yeah um thinking about what lucy and patsy were talking about in terms of like our sacred places and historical places like the significance of Fort Simcoe, um, the significance of Walla Walla being where we signed our treaty, where uh, several tribes that come together either reluctantly or voluntarily. Um, and then thinking about even Patsy bringing up the Whitman massacre and how that gets misinterpreted um, by history and putting that into perspective with the current protests going on um, for Black Lives Matters and police brutality and how society kind of reacts to being shocked about some of these things. But I also remember, I can't remember what year it was, maybe a few years ago, someone had defaced and vandalized the Marcus Whitman statue and people were like aghast at that. But those of us who had a, like a Native American perspective understanding of that history, we were like, yeah, you know, that makes sense. You know, and it definitely is similar to that of what's going on with the protests going on now, where some people are aghast with um, the demonstrations, uh, the, the powerful um, 
actions people are taking with demonstrations. But when you have that history of violence, you're like, oh yeah, okay, yeah, like this is what we're feeling right now. Um, but it also reflects the, as Lucy said, the dehumanization of Native women as primarily a monetary value, but not of having any human value, you know. Um, definitely property driven. And, you know, Lucy, uh, um, Lucy and I worked together, Patsy and I worked together a lot with youth and just seeing even now uh, how some young ladies don't value themselves and they kind of let people um, tell them their value. And these are like young girls in school, you know, and we were, you know, when Patsy and I worked together, we were always very vigilant in keeping an eye on these young ladies, just because we knew that one, they were having, you know, problems at home, or they were having problems with their family, or they had loss. And it's scary when you know that there are predators out there who are actually looking at those particular aspects of a young lady to exploit them. And, and I think it's important that uh, those of us who are fortunate in uh, having a good grounding in who we are, even if, you know, it took years for us to build that good grounding to keep a watch out for those who perhaps are on unstable ground, because those are the ones that I, at least I've seen that are being taken advantage of in every institution. And, you know, this again goes back to even our relationship to American institutions to begin with, like how well do we trust these institutions? And this directly reflects families' frustrations with police, families' frustrations with schools, with institutions that were put there to perhaps meant to protect us or to keep things in line, and then they just don't work or they're not applicable in the sense to work for us as Native women. Thank you, Robin. Uh, you know, the aspect of valuing the aspect of the ongoing um, protests, what's happening nationwide, actually internationally, for the rights of Black people in our country. And the, um, you know, it's a trigger. You're right. I mean, I, I think, I think of this and I think I also have thought, well, I don't want to drown out any messaging. I want to elevate and amplify, amplify the voices of our um, uh, Black people that are speaking so uh, importantly uh, about so many different topics. I also think about how many of our Yakima people have died in police custody. You know, it's, it is a trigger. I mean, my, my jaw is tight and tense. And then when I started writing and typing this article, I started thinking about the voice. I, I do think about this voice and I do think about the aspect that uh, if a homicide case happened in 1855 and it hasn't been solved or it's still open, we can still speak and advocate for justice for those women. And that stretches back to 1910. And some of uh, people that don't maybe don't agree with us on this point might think, why don't you just get over it? Why don't you just move on? That was so long ago. Is that land still around? Are the people that have profited from it in 1910 still gaining and, and extracting resources from that native woman that had treaty rights? And if they don't even understand what the it is, could, because we barely understand what this article means. If we don't understand what the it is, how can we move along? So I, I appreciate all of your thoughts today. Uh, I think we're at time. Is that right, producer? I don't <laughs> I just <laughs> wanted to follow up on what Emily said about you know, where we are today. To me, this speaks also to our over health and well-being. It's you know, people want to say, get over it. Um, it's a part of our DNA. And our DNA lives on, it lives on in our children, our grandchildren, our families. It's a part of who we are. And, and then it contributes to our over health and well-being. I mean, I just take a look at some of the health issues that we have in our, our tribes. Some major, major health issues, cardiovascular disease, um, diabetes, heart problems, etc., in order to begin addressing those, we also have to take a look at our history as a people and ourselves as individuals and find out what's contributing to these factors. You know, these, what are these contributing factors that we have? We could take a look at stress, all of this. 
And so it's not something you just sim simply can say, get over it. Again, we have to, again, go back to who we are in our physical being as well, our physical and spiritual being. Thank you. Thank you, Patsy. Thank you, Robin. And thank you, Lucy, so much. We have so much to discuss and talk about, and we'll be covering those uh, twice a month with you here on the War Cry podcast, which we're joining us in for our first episode. I hope you can tune in and join us on social media, amplify your messages, tell your friends about it. So for our announcements, we will have episode two aired Tuesday, June 23rd, and we'll discuss the presidential task force uh, called Late Operation Lady Justice, and they had the Pacific Northwest listening session that was held June 3rd. So uh, a couple of us, all of us participated on that call, uh, either in listening form or speaking form, and we hope that you can join us to talk about what we discussed and what we, uh, the points that were made. Okay, we have this episode produced by Robin P. Bishy. Our logo is by John Only Schellenberger with Native Anthro. We have photos by Nicole Pibashi, and we also have photos by Aaron Whitefoot of Yakima Nation Hunters and Gatherers. We have music by Lee Sikakwapiwak.